Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you P.D. James's Devices and Desires. When Adam Dalgleish visits Lark Soken, a remote headland community on the Norfolk coast in the shadow of a nuclear power station, he expects to be engaged only in the sad business of tying up his aunt's estate. But the peace of Lark Soken is illusory. Someone is terrorizing the neighborhood, and Dalgleish finds himself drawn into the lives of the isolated headlanders in an attempt to uncover what sinister forces are at work. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. That footprint at the scene, it was the sole of a Bumble trainer. Now, Bumbles are unique. They have a yellow bee on each heel. You must have seen them. Well, as a matter of fact, I have seen one. Last Wednesday, I took some of my aunt's clothes to the old rectory for the church jumble. I saw the heel of a bumble trainer among some other shoes. I think it's possible they were Toby Gledhills. Lessingham told me that Toby was wearing bumbles when he killed himself. Devices and Desires by P.D. James Dramatised in six episodes by Neville Teller With Robin Ellis as Adam Dalgleish Episode 5 We're looking for a particular pair of trainers, Mrs. Dennison, which we believe might be in your jumble box. It's all out here. I leave the back door open all day so that people can just leave things without bothering to knock. Or help themselves without bothering to knock. This is Lark Soken, Sergeant, not London. Do you mind if I... Oh, um... please, go ahead. Mrs. Denison, uh, this is the sort of shoe we're looking for. It's known as a bumble trainer. Was a pair ever in that box? Yes. Mr. Lessingham bought them in. They were among that young man's things, the one who killed himself up at the power station. Toby Gledhill. Yeah, did uh, Mr. Lessingham just leave everything here? Oh, no. There was too much of it. He rang at the front door. It was towards the end of August, I think, with a suitcase full. We unpacked the clothes together. I remember putting the trainers in a plastic bag. It's nothing, sir. And when did you last see the trainers? I can't possibly remember that, Chief Inspector. Would it surprise you to learn that we have a witness who saw the trainers in this box last Wednesday morning? You can't have been listening to what I said, Sergeant. I've no idea when I last saw the shoes. So how could it surprise me to learn when somebody else last saw them? Yes? Miss Beasley? That's who I am. Who are you? I'm sorry to trouble you. I'm a friend of Caroline's. Caroline Amphlett. I'm trying to trace her. I've come all the way from Nottingham. Nottingham? Good heavens. Well, you look harmless enough and appear to be unarmed. Are you harmless, Mr... Percival. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, you better come in. Mrs. Dennison, when was it decided that the Reverend and Mrs. Copley should go and stay with their daughter? Last Friday, after Christine Baldwin was murdered. I was to drive them to Norwich to catch the 8.30 on Sunday evening. But you didn't drive them to Norwich, did you? I've already explained that, Sergeant. The car wouldn't start. And when did you discover that, madam? 
as we were due to leave. Could you describe exactly what happened? Well, at about half past six, while the Copleys were finishing packing, I drove the car round to the front door. I finally got them into it at about 7.15. Then it wouldn't start. So I rang Mr Sparks at Lidset Garage and arranged for him to take them in his taxi. But without you? Oh, I felt bad about that. But Mr Sparks could only take the job if he could go straight on to Ipswich, where he had to pick up a fare. Where is the car normally kept, Mrs Dennison? In the garage. Locked? Well, there's a padlock. I don't suppose it's all that secure, but it was locked when I went for the car. Three quarters of an hour before you needed to leave. Is that significant? It could be. Why so much time? Oh, have you ever tried to load a car for two elderly people who are leaving on an indefinite stay? Hmm. And while it stood there in front of the house, was it continually under your eye? Of course not, Chief Inspector. I was busy checking that the copies had everything they needed. Are you suggesting someone sabotaged it? Hmm. Well, that would be a little fanciful, wouldn't it? This is Lark Soken, not London. I agree. So, Mr Sparks came in his taxi, and after that you're on your own. Mm. And when at 9.45 Mr Jago rang from the local hero to tell you that the Whistler's body had been found, what did you do then? Well, by then the Copleys were well on their way. I rang their daughter and told her, and she said that since she'd made all the arrangements, they might as well stay for a week. Mrs Dennison, one of my officers has seen Mr Sparks. He was anxious to reassure you that the Copleys were safe on their way and he rang you on his car phone at about 9.15. But he could get no reply. I must have been in the garden. It was a beautiful moonlit night. I didn't want to stay in the house. Even with the whistler, as you thought, still at large. You went no further than the garden? I did not, Chief Inspector. Yet you didn't hear the telephone? It's a very large garden. But it was a very quiet night, madam. So you're a friend of Caroline's. You surprised me, Mr... I'm afraid I've already forgotten your name. Percival. Charles Percival. I met Caroline in Paris the year before last. We went round the Louvre together. She gave me her address, but I lost it. How careless. So you waited all this time and then decided to trace her. Why now, Mr Percival, when you have controlled your impatience for the last two years? Well, I, I happen to be in London... I'm down from Nottingham. I looked at Amphlet in the telephone directory. It was impulse, really. Oh, as you see, she's not here. In fact, she hasn't lived here since she was 17. And as I'm only the housekeeper, it's hardly my place to hand out information about the family's whereabouts to casual callers. I'm sorry I've offended you. I was just hoping to see her or her mother. You haven't offended me, Mr Percival. But I'm afraid you can't see Mrs Amphlet either. She goes to Italy in late September and then flies to Spain until the spring. I'm surprised Caroline didn't tell you. As you know, a wealthy woman needn't endure the English winter. But I thought Caroline told me her mother was poor, that she lost all her money investing in Peter Robart's plastics company. Caroline could have told you nothing of the sort. Her mother inherited a fortune when she was 21, and she's never lost a penny of it. It was my small capital. Ten thousand pounds, in case you're interested, which was unwisely invested in the schemes of that... that shark. But Caroline would hardly confide my personal tragedy to a stranger. She did talk of you. That's how I knew your name. Did she indeed? 
You do surprise me, Mr. Percival. Although, as I was her nanny... <laughs> ridiculous expression, you could say, I brought her up. Unfortunately, the Amphlets have never valued their daughters. Her brother was killed in a car crash when he was 15. Caroline survived without a scratch. Her parents never forgave her. They made it plain the wrong child had been killed. Caroline's father was in the army, wasn't he? A brigadier, correct. And now I expect you'll want to be on your way. Well, if you don't think you can give me Caroline's address... I'm afraid not. If you care to leave a letter, I'll see it gets to her. You can write a note at that bureau. Oh, thank you. I think I'll write later. I'll post it to this address, if I may. As you wish. Caroline's old friends are suddenly very anxious to get in touch with her. You didn't phone on Tuesday, did you, Mr Percival? Uh, no. No. He didn't sound like you. Scottish, possibly. Whereas your voice is without character or distinction. This way, Mr Percival. Your visit may have been less productive than you hoped, but I expect you got what you came for. Down here. Pretty snug down here, don't you think, Chief Inspector? Yeah, very nice, sir. Is this the boat you were sailing last Sunday night? I wouldn't say sailing exactly, Chief Inspector. There wasn't enough wind. Well, this is the boat, all right. I'd uh, like you to take a look at these trainers, sir. Ever seen a pair like these? Of course I have. They're bumbles. But Toby Gledhill had a pair. After he killed himself, his parents asked me to clear out his clothes. They were among his things. Actually, they were brand new. He bought them about a week before he died. He only wore them once, on the day he committed suicide. And what did you do with them, Mr. Lessing? I took them with the rest of his clothes to the old rectory for the next church jumble sale. I read about Dr. Gledhill's suicide, of course. They, uh, they said he had a great future ahead of him. He was a creative scientist, Chief Inspector. Brilliant. A mayor will confirm that, if you ask him. He's due to publish their long-awaited joint study before he leaves. Toby was only 24. He could have become anything. It's no use trying to explain Toby to you. You wouldn't understand. Oh, are you sure about that, Mr Lessingham? Mm, very sure. So why don't we keep it simple, huh? Stick to the facts. He was an exceptional person. He was clever, he was kind, he was beautiful. If you find just one of those qualities in a human being, you're lucky. If you find all three... I was in love with him. He knew, because I told him. He wasn't in love with me, and he wasn't gay. Not that this is your business, but if you're determined to be interested in Toby, you may as well get it right. I appreciate your frankness, sir. So you didn't have a sexual relationship with him? What the hell has that to do with Hillary Robart's murder? Well, possibly nothing at all, in which case the information will be kept private. <sighs> we spent one night together two weeks before he died. As I said, he was kind. It was the first and the last time. Did Hillary Robards know about this? What possible relevance? All right, Sergeant. It's your job to do the scavenging. As it happens, yes, she knew. And she found out by one of those one-in-a-million chances. She happened to take a day's leave on that particular day, and she happened to drive past my house on that particular morning. Toby and I were leaving. It was just after half-past seven. Did she talk to Dr. Gledhill about it? Oh, yes, Sergeant. She spoke to Toby, all right. That's the reason he killed himself. Are you suggesting she blackmailed him? 
I'm suggesting he was unhappy and uncertain about every aspect of his life, personal and professional. She knew that and used it. But you can give us no concrete evidence of her responsibility for his death? He spoke to me that day. He said, tell Hillary she doesn't have to worry. I've made my choice. So you have a motive for her murder, sir? <laughs> Damned right. But I didn't do it. And you'll find no concrete evidence that I did. Carrie, darling, Nanny has something important to tell you. You won't like it, my sweet. Nanny's had a phone call and also a visitor. Two strangers asking questions. Or it could have been the same man. Yes, it really could. I wonder... They were neither of them very convincing. Nanny didn't believe them, darling. The one who turned up. He was young and nervous. Mind you, that might be just the kind of person they would send to put Nanny off her guard. They know how to select the right man for the job. We know that, don't we, my sweet? My own darling, you must be careful. You will be careful, won't you, Carrie? Good morning. Morning. Lovely day for the time of year. Uh, yes, yes, it is. Look, I'm sorry if I seem impertinent, but could I ask you where you got those shoes? You're not about to claim ownership, I do hope. <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. They're not mine. Well, that's good. To begin an acquaintance, however brief, with a dispute over property is always a mistake. Property's a concept I've not much time for. I can imagine. No, I was wondering how long you'd had the shoes. Shoes? As a description, does them too much credit, sir. <laughs> In today's parlance, I believe they're commonly referred to as trainers. One picks up a great deal of common parlance on the road. My name, incidentally, is Jonah. And mine is Adam Dalgleish. Well, then, Adam Dalgleish, give me one good reason why I should answer your question, and you shall have an answer. I will. On Sunday night, a woman was strangled on the beach not far from here. The police found a distinct footprint near the body and are looking for a pair of bumble trainers. Well, that's clear enough. You talk like a policeman. I'd be sorry to hear that you are one. <laughs> well, this isn't my case, but I am a policeman, I'm afraid. And these are bumble trainers, are they? It's the yellow bee on each heel. Are you telling me that I now have on my feet the shoes of a murderer? It is possible that these are what he was wearing when he murdered that woman. Have you heard of the Norfolk Whistler? Well, is it a bird? A serial killer. And these trainers are his? No, he's dead. This latest killing was made to look as if he were responsible. Are you telling me that you haven't even heard of him? I sometimes see a newspaper when I need paper for more earthy reasons, but I seldom read them. They reinforce my conviction that the world is not for me. I seem to have missed your murdering Whistler, so... What am I expected to do now, Adam Dalgleish? Well, if you wouldn't mind coming home with me, I could telephone the officer in charge of the case. Uh, my car's just up here. Lead the way, sir. Very nice. You must be a very superior type of policeman. A commander in the mat. Ah, I'm impressed. If you care to exchange those trainers, I should be able to find a pair of my shoes to fit you. It's not really my business, but how did you come by the trainers? They were bestowed on me. Bestowed on you? Hmm. Sometime on Sunday night. 
I'd arrived on the headland after dark, and I made my way to the usual night shelter near the cliff. A pill box, I think it's called. I expect you know it. Well, I do know it. Not a very salubrious place to spend the night. I have known better. It has the advantage of privacy, and it's weatherproof. The slit faces the sea, so I can light a fire without fear of discovery. I usually visit once a year and stay a few days. Did you go there straight away? No. I always call at the old rectory first. The couple who live there are usually very obliging and let me fill up my water bottle. As it happens, there was no one at home. The lights were on downstairs, but no one answered the bell. What time would this be, do you remember? Well... The church clock showed 8.30 as I passed through the village, so it must have been about 9.15. What did you do then? I knew there was an outside tap close to the garage, so I took the liberty of filling my bottle without permission. Did you see a car? There was one standing in the drive. And then? Then I went straight to the pillbox. I was very tired. I drank some of the water, ate a little bread and cheese, and fell asleep. The shoes were thrown in sometime during the night. I found them next morning. As I turned over, I felt something hard beneath me. It was one of the shoes. The other I found near my foot. So you accepted them? As a gift from God? Wouldn't you? <laughs> You'll find my old shoes in the pillbox. And you put these on? Oh, not straight away. They were too damp. Someone had washed them very thoroughly. Uh, by the way... You ought to know what manner of man you are inviting under your roof. Well, I should certainly be interested to know something about you. You've heard of remittance men. The black sheep of the family, sent off to the colonies on an allowance, provided they never return. I, sir, am a modern example. My brother, a prominent member of his local community, transfers £1,000 per annum from his bank account into mine, providing I never embarrass him by intruding on his presence. That must come in useful. He is indefatigable in good works, and you could say that I am among the recipients of his charity. He has been honoured by Her Majesty. An OBE, merely, as yet, but he has hopes of higher things, I'm sure. <laughs> and how long have you been living this life? Nearly 20 years now, sir. And I can honestly testify that a man who is free of all human desires except to eat, sleep, and walk, that man is truly free. And you really have no other desires? Drink? Women? If by women you mean sex, then the answer is no. I am escaping, sir, from drink and sex. Then you are on the run from something. I could argue that a man on the run is never entirely free. And I could ask you what you are escaping from on this lonely headland. If from the violence of your job, you have been singularly unlucky. And now that same violence has touched you. I'm sorry. A man who lives with nature is used to violence and is companionable with death. Nevertheless... It may prove to be an ill day for me when I met you, Adam Dalgleish. But a good day for justice. Ah, oh, justice. Is that the business you're in? Too late, I fear. This planet Earth is hurtling towards its destruction. A failed experiment. You think so? Ah. You smile. So this tramp is mad after all. I needn't take him seriously. No. My mind agrees with you. But my heart is more optimistic. At least I shall die as I have lived. 
in the nearest dry ditch. And wearing my shoes. <laughs> hey! Hey there! Caroline! What the hell do you want, Jonathan? To talk to you. I've been following you since you left the bungalow. I know that, you fool. You've been in my mirror practically the whole way. Caroline, I have to talk to you. Then wait until tomorrow. Or stay where you are if you must. We'll be back in an hour. Where are you going? What are you doing? For Christ's sake, what do you think I'm doing? This is a boat, my boat. Out there is the sea. Amy and I are planning a short trip. Amy? Who's Amy? Hi. But it's nearly night, and it's getting foggy. So? It's dark and it's misty. Look, Jonathan, why don't you mind your own business and get off home to mother? Caroline, please. I know you lied about your mother being ruined by Hillary's father. That wasn't true, any of it. Look, if you're in trouble, I'd like to help. I am not in trouble, and if I were, you'd be the last person I'd turn to. And take your hand off my boat. You never told me you had a boat. There are a great many things I didn't tell you. It wasn't real, was it? Any of it. You don't love me. You never loved me. Love? Take a good long look at yourself in front of a mirror. How could you ever have imagined it was real? This is real. Amy and me. She's why I stay at Lark's Token, and I'm why she stays. Now you know. You used me? Yes, I used you. We used each other. That's what sex is. And if you want to know, it was bloody hard work. And it made me sick. It's very good of you to invite me in, Mr. Dalglish. We haven't actually met, but I expect you've heard of me. I'm Neil Pascoe from the caravan. I'm sorry for butting in when you want some peace. If it's about the murder, then you ought to be speaking to Chief Inspector Rickards, not me. This isn't my case. I wouldn't have come if there were anyone else I could talk to. There are things I can't discuss with Amy. As long as you remember whom you're talking to. A policeman. Like the priesthood, isn't it? <laughs> Never off duty. It's not in the least like the priesthood. There's no seal of the confessional and there's no absolution. As long as you understand. It's about Toby Gledhill, the boy... Well, he was a boy, really, who killed himself at the power station. I've heard about Toby Gledhill. Then I expect you know he held himself down on top of the reactor. That was on Friday the 12th of August, two days before, on the Wednesday, he came to see me. Really? At about nine in the evening. I was in a caravan with the baby, Timmy. Amy had taken the van into Norwich to do some shopping, and there was a film she wanted to see. Then there was this knock, and there he stood. Did you know him? I knew who he was. I'd seen him at those open days at a power station. I couldn't think what he wanted, but he said he had something important to say to me. I suggested we take a walk along the shore. I lifted Timmy out of his cot and put him into the backpack, and we set off. I'll come straight to the point, Mr Pascoe. You're running people against nuclear power. And your living depends on nuclear power. We can't have all that much to say to each other. That's just what I want to talk about. I've come to the conclusion that nuclear power is too dangerous to use. Are you serious? Deadly. Until we've solved the problem of radioactive waste, I believe we oughtn't to build any more nuclear power stations. It's not only dangerous, it's corrupting. What's brought you to this conclusion? A number of things. Chernobyl, for one. But there's something else that's helped. Some research I'm doing. So what are you going to do? Resign. I won't go on working in nuclear power. And are you prepared to help us in Pan-Up? I think I have a moral obligation to. It won't be easy for me. 
I not only like my colleagues, I respect their integrity. They believe in what they're doing. It's just that I can't go on sharing their beliefs. Have you spoken to anyone else at the station? Not yet. That's what I dread most. Good God! Look, isn't that Hillary? I didn't expect to see me rise like Aphrodite from the waves. She came slowly up the beach towards us. We were mesmerized. She looked magnificent. The drops of water glistening on her skin, and that locket she wears resting between her naked breasts. It's nice to see you, Toby. Why not come down to the cottage for a drink and a meal? Such harmless-sounding words, but they weren't. He couldn't resist her. I don't suppose I would have been able to either. She was offering him security, success, respect, love. What could I give him but trouble, even disgrace? I knew what would happen in the cottage if he went with her, and he knew too. She turned her back on us, absolutely confident that he'd follow her, and he did. Two days later, he killed himself. If it hadn't been for that meeting on the beach, I think he'd be alive now. He just couldn't take any more. Why are you telling me this? Because I'm not sure if it's relevant. Something Ricard should know about. They're both dead. How can he help catch Miss Robart's killer? Of course, it's relevant. You're suggesting that she was blackmailing Toby Gledhill into staying in his job. If she could try that on one person, she could try it on another, someone who might strike back. Pascoe's description of Hillary Robart's walking out of the sea had been remarkably vivid. But one detail was wrong. I remembered Mayor's words as he stood looking down at the body. That locket round her neck. I gave it to her for her birthday three weeks ago. Hilary Robarts was murdered on Sunday, the twenty-fifth of September. Pascoe had undoubtedly seen her walking out of the sea with the locket resting between her naked breasts, but it couldn't have been on the tenth of August, so it must have been on some other occasion. Who was that creep? Just a man from Larksoken. His name's Jonathan Reeves. He's not important. Why did you tell him all those lies? We're not lovers. Because it was necessary. What does it matter anyhow? It matters to me. I'm going to find him and tell him the truth. That's the one thing you won't be able to do. I'm afraid. Why not? Because we're not going back. What the bloody hell are you talking about? You said we'd be gone about an hour. You said we were going to meet some comrades offshore and get new instructions. We're not going back. Get that through your thick head. When I recruited you in that London squad, I didn't tell you the truth. I didn't know how far I could trust you. Anyway, I didn't know the whole truth myself. That's the way the operation works. What truth? I've got to get back to Timmy. Operation Bird calls nothing to do with animal rights. Threatened whales, sick seals, abandoned dogs, and all the other spurious miseries you agonise over—it's something far more important. It's to do with human beings and their future, with how we organise our world. Turn the boat round. We've got to go back. Oh no, we've still got a long way to go. We're meeting them at a precise spot. I hope this mist doesn't thicken. Who? Who are we meeting? I don't know their names. We are all of us told only as much as we actually need to know. But my instructions were that if Operation Bird Call was blown, I was to ring a number and activate the emergency procedure for getting me out. That's why I bought this boat. I made sure it was always ready. 
I was told precisely where they'll pick us up. Then they'll get us into Germany, provide false papers, a new identity, and get us work. Not for me, they bloody won't. They're terrorists, aren't they? And you're one too. You're a bloody terrorist. And what else are the agents of capitalism? What are the armies, the police, the courts? What are the multinational corporations who keep three quarters of the world population poor and hungry? Don't use words you don't understand. And don't you patronise me. I understand what a terrorist is. What were you planning to do, for Christ's sake? Sabotage the reactor? Release all that radioactivity? Kill everyone on the headland? Kill Timmy? We wouldn't need to. The threat would be sufficient once we'd taken over the power stations. Stations? How many? Where? One here, one in France, one in Germany. We don't need armies to change the world. All we need are a few trained, intelligent comrades. Much more cost-effective in human life than the militaristic industry of death in which my father made his career. Oh God, take me back! I want Timmy. I want Neil. I can't do that, Amy. And if you didn't want to be part of all this, why did you kill Hillary Robarts? What? Do you think we wanted a murder investigation centered on Lark Soken? Are you out of your mind? I didn't kill her. Then who did? In episode five of Devices and Desires by P. D. James, dramatized by Neville Teller, Robin Ellis played Adam Dalgleish. Bruce Alexander was Rickards. Susanna Doyle, Hillary, Amita Deary, Caroline, Vaughan Savelle, Jonathan, Paola Dionizotti, Miss Beasley, Jonathan Taffler, Sergeant Oliphant, Emily Richard, Meg Dennison, Dominic Jeffcott, Miles Lessingham, John Gower, Jonah, Will Johnson, Neil Pascoe, Sasha Paul, Amy, and Michael Grandage played Toby. Devices and Desires was directed by Matthew Walters as a Labrook Radio production for BBC Radio Four. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.